as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 raged through Christmas of 2021. Calls were made across the West for a return to the lockdowns that most countries had only emerged from the previous summer. The popular show took a different approach and collected a group of academics to summarise the harms and collateral damage accrued during COVID lockdowns, a record of human blight that tended to be ignored or minimised by defenders of maximal COVID containment measures. For Christmas 2022, the popular show continues our ongoing work looking critically at COVID measures from a left-wing, democratic and populist perspective. If you would like to support our work and get access to our new COVID-critical mini-series in its entirety, please get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. The popular show would like to thank the charity Collateral Global for their support, about which a few words now. What happened to the Global South is unconscionable, and that's why we've set up this charity Collateral Global to try and document what happened in the Global South, as well as, of course, everywhere else in the world because it's important that we remember the cost of living crisis now is a direct result of these measures and who does that affect? It affects the young, it affects the poor. These are the people we, we want to protect. These are the people we want to give hope to. If you got it, a truck brought it to If you got your food, your clothing, your medicine, if you got fuel for your homes, fuel for your industries, a truck brought it to you. The day our trucks stop, America stops. Yes, yes, welcome back. It's me, James A. Smith, for The Popular Show, and I'm thrilled to welcome back to TPS, Gord McGill, the working man's friend, the log-rolling philosopher himself. How are you, Gord? Oh, I'm fantastic, and um, yeah, thank you for uh, the Irishman intro. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa, (laughs) Jimmy Hoffa, for all of you labor unionist types and uh, uh, populists and pimps for the working class, and various uh, flavors in betwixt. He's your guy. We need to return with the V in the middle as the kids type online. We absolutely do need to return uh, to that particular tradition. Uh, Gord McGill, for people who don't know, he's a a truck driver, um, drives logs over the U.S.-Canadian border, uh, and he's um, also a, a, a writer and a prolific podcast guest you can read his stuff on newsweek and on his own Substack. Uh, and i gather we're going to be getting a gord mcgill podcast pretty soon uh yeah i've been asked by a number of people to over the years even back before i had any online presence just because i've lived a charmed life and i've driven truck in a few different places and I know some very interesting people. So, yeah, that 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 thing is finally happening and should be released in the new year. Uh, no guarantees on how long it's going to go. It'll just be me talking to a bunch of different people. I'll release them into the universe. And uh, once I run out of that tank of fuel, she'll be done and dusted. 
And we're no, going to be no hearing problem. from people from like you know truck driving past, basically. This is this is people. Yeah, so, so, some people, some people from my trucking past, uh, mm -hmm. old guys who are not online and have very interesting stories. Um, some people in the trucking media, although I have a bit of a bone to pick with them, and they kind of ignore me, so I'm probably going to ignore them back. Um, some academics. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've been in the business long enough now that I decided to like try and dig deeper into it. And so I've come across like academic written work by people who study labor. Um, you know, there's a guy at Wayne state university in Michigan named Michael Belzer, who wrote the first sort of academic study of, uh, the trucking industry in America post-regulation in 1980, Mm -hmm. um, there's another guy who teaches at uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. His name is Steve Shelley. He wrote a book about six years ago called The Big Reg, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream, which studied how in uh, the times of deregulation, they managed to convince truck drivers to keep working at a job that was paying less money and causing all kinds of problems. And there's another book that just came out uh, called data-driven truckers technology in the new workplace surveillance by a, a woman at Cornell named Karen Levy, sociology professor and professor Levy. Uh, I went and met her in August and I got an advanced copy of her book and I'm working on a review of it uh, right now. Great. And I hope, I hope to have all three of those people on my show because um, there's this weird uh, situation with like, Trucking media, regular media, uh, truckers and the people who study them, where people like Steve Vichelli end up on NPR all the time, and you'll never hear about his book basically anywhere in the trucking media, with the yeah. exception of OIDA, perhaps. And, um, you know, I want to, I don't know, maybe I'm being a pompous asshole here, but like bridge the gap between the academics and the truckers, because like when I talk to my truck driving friends, most of them have no idea who these people are and they don't care and they shouldn't have to care. They should be able to go about their lives and make money and support their families and not have to think about this shit. But um, there's forces at work that are, have been trying to make our lives harder for a long time. And I've been studying the work of the people who've been studying those forces, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I guess uh, the one thing you say about truck drivers is they've got time to listen to things. Uh, and so there is a whole lot of listening time that those guys have got open to them that uh, you can be talking to them through. So, I, uh, I, I could. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the, 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 yeah, tr truckers are probably like the biggest group of people who listen to podcasts and audiobooks. So. You know, if I can um, get their ear for a little while, uh, you know, in, in, in a medium that's not the CB radio, um, very good. And it's not even about me. It's about the people I want to talk to because there's lots of super interesting people out there. And um, if I can have a nice conversation with them and then chuck it out into the universe for other people to enjoy, then good. Yeah. Well, Christmas is a, a time for reflection. And in this mini-series, uh, COVID Critical. We've been thinking back over the events of the year and the kind of ongoing 
um, long fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic and the the long-term effects that we're we're living through of the um, of, of the the COVID prevention measures that were imposed during that time and and that are ongoing to some extent uh, it, it is a really interesting thought actually that probably the most successful of the grassroots resistances to um, certain unjust or authoritarian or unnecessary aspects of that COVID uh, prevention effort by states, that that, that was the, the truckers, the truckers' convoy, uh, who, I, I, am I right? It was this time last year that that all kind of kicked off, the, so the, res it, the it, resistance it to vaccine mandates. We are, we are approaching the one-year anniversary mm -hmm. of the organization of the Freedom Convoy. And it's uh, it's it's trek from various points across Canada to Ottawa. Um, we also are several weeks out from the wrap up of the inquiry inquiry into that the official Canadian yes. federal government inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which was the um, uh, the the, the flamethrower that Justin Trudeau used to push back all of these peaceful protesters, um, uh, buried buried within the Emergencies Act um, is a requirement to look into it afterwards because mm -hmm. it's considered such a major nuclear option, and that yeah. just that just wrapped up a few weeks ago. Um, there's been a uh, a major. Uh, I don't. Uh, this is going to sound sort of. Uh, contradictory but a, a major underground documentary film about the freedom convoy was just released a week or two ago called unacceptable views which was very hot uh online amongst uh people who pay attention to this stuff uh, of course uh zero um zero interest from mainstream media but you know we can we can talk about that um yeah i've been asked to contribute a chapter to a book which is um, kind of following your podcast series. Um, I'm, I'm not going to name the people putting it together. I don't want to jinx it. Um, but some folks in New York and Switzerland, of all places, are uh, putting together this um, compilation book tentatively titled The Tyranny of Fear, which is going to be an examination of how uh, the left, quotation marks, um, around the world... Uh, basically allowed themselves to be steamrolled by the COVID regime and then got up and in fact were its biggest cheerleaders um, and kind of going against their own principles of like freedom of speech, skepticism, um, bodily autonomy, all these things. Yeah. Uh, the folks organizing this book asked me to contribute a chapter, which I've done. It's taken up some of my time. So all of this stuff is very fresh in my head right now. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, we spoke to you in February, uh, and I think that was prior to Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act. But but already the narrative had been set. Uh, already we were hearing in mainstream sources, and and I'm sad to say across the the sort of former Bernie left, uh, and people basically taking the same attitude on the left in the UK as well that. Um, I mean, what, what was the list of accusations that you guys were being bankrolled by 
the Koch brothers and by uh, uh, right-wing billionaires, that you were um, Nazis, that you were rude <laughs> to somebody in a mall. Um, and Man, there's, good and... <laughs> there's so much, there's so much to unpack yeah. there. And yeah. um, for, okay, I can't expect everybody to pay attention to all this stuff. And I guess that's why I'm here because I'm the guy that's been paying attention to it. Um, of course, I'm biased because I supported the Freedom Convoy. But in the end, you know, I, I, I've been I, I've uh, been called many things by former friends and associates and family members for supporting the Freedom Convoy, uh, including a conspiracy theorist. But. You know, uh, they say the only the difference between a conspiracy theorist and a normie is about six months. Yeah. And, um, and the, here we are. <laughs> the, the, the Public Order Emergency Commission brought out uh, quite a few uh, interesting and varied receipts about um, uh, the Trudeau government and its uh, duplicitous handling of the Freedom Convoy. Um, the narrative spinning, it was revealed that um, his public safety minister, this lying sucker uh, named Marco Mendocino, uh, his underlings were contacting the media about a week before the Freedom Convoy even got to Ottawa um, to yeah. uh, organize a narrative to set, to, to paint us in a negative light before anybody even came to town. Um, uh, some other interesting things you know, people made a lot of noise about the flags. Um, two weeks, actually, at the end of the Public Order Emergency Commission, um, the, the, the media got really stuck on this one picture of a rebel, a Confederate flag from the U.S. Uh, Civil War on the back of this guy's pickup truck. And the gentleman who sported that pickup truck came forward and said, it was me. Hi, I'm over here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't do it out of racism. It was just like the rebel spirit, you know, and that was completely ignored by the media. You know, uh, our, your co-host, David, in a recent episode um, with uh, this this comedian lady said that, you know, uh, there, uh, he him and his him, him and this uh, comedian listed a, a bunch of like, you know, quote unquote, right wing media people from Canada as being the worst the Anglosphere has to offer. I would counter that by saying whatever you think of them, they were the only people telling the truth about the Freedom Convoy. And so this gentleman came forward and the only media people that would talk to him were Rebel News. Yeah. It was owned by this guy named Ezra Levant that everybody in the left in Canada hates. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm ambivalent about Ezra, whatever. Don't care. Um, there was another, there was a, an interesting, um, there's, there's an intelligence service. The Canadian Federal Intelligence Service is called CSIS, uh, Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. They're like, they're the domestic and foreign. So imagine the CIA and FBI were one unit. That's CSIS. Okay. CSIS published a report in February, right? Like right when the Emergencies Act came down that was initially secret, but then was like, released from being secret and made available to the public and it was called flags of the protests and CSIS agents went around the freedom convoy trying to find all of these supposed nazis and right-wing agitators and all these bad people couldn't find them 
they found a very small handful of people who did employ, you know, a swastika or whatnot and talk to them. And to a person, every one of them told the CSIS agents that um, this isn't about supporting Nazis. We, we're accusing Justin Trudeau of right. using yeah. Nazi rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And if you understand the history of Adolf Hitler and what he said about the Jews, a lot of it was about health. And he said they were diseased and he used all this terrible rhetoric to outgroup out and scapegoat people, which is exactly what Trudeau did to the Freedom Convoy or anybody that, that was skeptical of COVID-19 vaccine requirements. And that report, and, and I want to make this point about the Canadian media, this report from CSIS gets declassified. The only newspaper in Canada, media outlet that reported on it, was these guys called the Western Standard, which is where Ezra Levant used to work before he started Rebel News. So, like, you know, the 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 media, the Fifth Estate, the, like they're supposed to tell us the information and let us make up our minds about it. Well, lying by omission is the thing. So when the Canadian equivalent of the CIA comes out and says, no, actually, these people were using these images to accuse Justin Trudeau rather than support what happened. 90 years ago and nobody talks about it like that that's lying by omission yeah absolutely and the the problem and part of the dereliction of duty really on the part of the the, the radical left um in in the last few years has been to totally fail to see uh, precisely the same playbook that was used against jeremy corbyn and his supporters here in britain used against uh, protesters like yourselves. I mean, we, we've had our share of guilt by association. We've had our share of willful misreading of symbols, and then the correction never gets published. We, we've, we've lived through the same thing. I, I'm tempted to say that actually, you know, this was a sort of uh, this was where the playbook got written, actually, that's been deployed against so many kind of dissident people on COVID. And then uh, the other point is that when you get a really kind of historically unique and politically ambiguous thing like COVID-19, there are going to be strange bedfellows, there are going to be surprising alliances, and you can't uh, go by, you know, good team, bad team. If, if somebody is covering something, if an agency, if an individual, a journalist or a, a platform is covering a story that matters and everyone else, the centre, the left, is ignoring it, then... You can't turn your nose up. You've got to uh, you you've you've got to muck in and get your hands dirty. Just as I'm sure plenty of people on the right consider that they were getting their hands dirty by um, associating with those people on the left who were interested in uh, in having any kind of critical faculty whatsoever on on all this COVID stuff. Right, and I, I've been to this rodeo before. Um, I you know. I don't know where my politics are these days. I don't know where they've been. They've been all over the place. Um, my, my wife is American. And when I first met her was 2011. And she was living in New York City at the time. And I just so happened to go to New York City and met up with her for a long weekend when Occupy Wall Street was happening. Yeah. So... She, I, I got there like on a Thursday. She had to work on Friday. So like I took the subway. I'm like, cool, let's go see what's happening at Occupy Wall Street. I went to Zuccotti Park. I talked to people. And I, I you know, I, I lean libertarian. I, I come from that world a little bit. Um, and there was all these Ron Paul people there, you yeah. know? 
with their like revolution sign with the like love turned around backwards. So it like made revolution and they were fighting the same fight as like all of these, you know, sort of uh, uh, left socialist communist people that showed up for Occupy Wall Street, because like at the end of the day, um, it, it, you know, some people don't like horseshoe theory, but occasionally it works where yeah. we recognize a common enemy and that enemy is the problem. And sometimes you have to set your other beefs with each other aside. Yeah. And, and, and okay, you don't, you don't want the same world in the long run, but on this local winnable battle, uh, you team up and you, and you don't uh, you know, get worried about what your peers are going to think. And, and that, that was obvious during the war on terror that uh, anti-imperialists and anti-interventionists on the, the right and the left were perfectly comfortable working together in that Hell way. Yeah. It, was true, it was true in Zuccotti Park. And for some reason, it stopped being true uh, uh, now when, when we've got you know, exactly the same kind of situation where, I don't know, I, I, I feel like early on in, in doing this show, I, I, I was more a more sympathetic listener to the, those leftists who were you know, paid up for the Pfizer party, but I, I just feel like as time has gone on, I've completely, I've just lost any sense of how they can possibly think that. <laughs> well, you know, so, uh, man, uh, how, how's that saying go? A lie gets around the world uh, before yeah. the truth has tied its laces, shoelaces. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a, a news item just came out today about the former head of the Australian Medical Association who filed this report about her and her partner, her wife, I mean, they're a lesbian couple, and that all of their negative reactions to the vaccine, and she filed this, like, 19-page report to the Australian Parliament detailing how she, former head of the Australian Medical Association or whatever their governing body is there, trying to get other doctors and um, medical boards down under to actually discuss vaccine adverse events and reactions. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and she was getting nowhere and she's, and she talked about this code of silence and now we have, you know, they've started to slowly say, well, actually, you know, blood clots are a thing. And so, you know, and, and to back to the freedom convoy, we had this, I was six or seven week long inquiry where it was shown that the government was pre building a narrative about the freedom convoy before they even got to Ottawa. It was shown that, um, you know, Spider-Man meme between uh, different levels of government and different police services. Right. So the Ontario yeah. provincial police uh, head of intelligence sat there and said, you know, the media and the feds, we're saying things about Freedom Convoy port participants of which we had no evidence for, and they were they're, they're trying to get these people to react, like or paint them badly with no evidence, right? Like this is all on the record, and everything they said about the Freedom Convoy has been proven incorrect. Uh, even before the POEC, they had a bunch of. Um, you know, meetings in Canadian Parliament where the head of GoFundMe and the head of Give, Send, Go were hauled before Canadian Parliament to answer for the donations. And both of those people said like 88 to 90 percent of the donations were from regular Canadians in amounts like 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, um, none of this was like some one rich guy in the U.S. And uh, one of the things I'm, I hope, I hope you don't mind if I go on a little bit of a rant here. Um, a little bit of Canadian history for your listeners. Um, and I'm going to annoy a lot of people by saying this, but it's the truth and it needs to be said. Canada has a real bad self-image problem that's been around for decades. And we, uh, the Canadian cultural psyche um, is always concerned with the United States. We're always comparing ourselves against them. It's always, you know, those dirty Americans and their guns and their lack of health care. And up here, we are so much better than them unless a Democrat is the president and then they're our friends. So like it, it, they, they have to, the Canadian media establishment, the cathedral North, I'm going to borrow Curtis Yarvin's neologism about the cathedral and apply it to Canada. Cathedral North does not have anything to talk about without the United States. If the, if, if the United States didn't exist, the Canadian media would have to invent it so as to have something to like form a Canadian identity around. And I stand by that. I was born in Canada. I grew up in Canada. I've traveled the world. I've seen how this whole thing works. And it's disgusting. And I hate it. And I wish they would give up on it. And you saw that with the Freedom Convoy. The immediate, like, oh, wow, these guys are all Trump supporters. What the fuck does Donald Trump have to do with the Freedom Convoy? <laughs> right? Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't impose the vaccine mandate that Justin Trudeau did in January 2022. In fact... I think Donald Trump hadn't even been in office in the United States for a whole year, right? And uh, the, the, they, they, cannot, they cannot operate and, and be honest that there are things that happen in Canada that are not influenced or part of U.S. culture, right? Yeah, and I think it goes further than that. I, I think you did write about that, um, that, that that's strange projection on the part of Canada that, that America is always the big brother, but also has to be the bad big brother. I think that what that is covering over right now, strangely, is that Canada, it's almost Canada's turn to be the laboratory and the petri dish of the next regime of power. Like right now, you've got increasingly country after country is getting a leader like Trudeau, like Macron, like Keir Starmer soon enough, like, dare I say, Zelensky. Or like, Jacinda uh, Ardern. Or, yeah, these are all no. the same guy. Even when it's a girl, it's the same guy. Rishi Sunak is the same guy. But <laughs> Trudeau is the outstanding example. All of the other people we've listed have got some residual, like, old-fashioned qualities about them. Trudeau combines the kind of weeping vulnerability of a, a drama student who only got to be the understudy um, we, and this kind of sensitivity and sensibility uh, and, yeah, eyes that are constantly, you know, seem to be welling up. He, he gets to be the byword for a kind of cultural liberalism at the same time as being the most outrageously authoritarian in terms of his actual legislation. And, and that is a kind of new and innovative combination that I think we're going to see a lot more countries learn from and the, the liberal wing of capital in a lot more countries learn from and copy. And, you know, only Trudeau 
could liberalize euthanasia. Uh, only oh, Trudeau could violently impose vaccine mandates in the way he, he had to. Even Biden had to do it secretly by, you know, luring Twitter employees in to, uh, to, to uh, uh, ban people, etc. Tr- it, it takes a, um, a curly-haired, weeping drama student like Trudeau to do it out in the open. You, so I say you... Canada, Canada shouldn't feel um, like it's the little brother because really it's the future right now that's what i'm yeah, scared of actually. and well you know and, and and to your point i don't know if you saw this but um there's been some uh uh some uh, d- domestic disturbances in iran especially with the religious police and making women wear headscarves and there's yeah. you know this has been going on for a long time there but now the iranian government has imported a trudeau thing of like Okay, cool. We're just going to freeze the bank accounts of anybody who's caught protesting our religious police. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, Canada's most famous export is freezing people out of their economic lives for having an opinion. Like, man, have you heard the story? I want to share one more thing here. I have to get this Mm -hmm. out. Dude. So um, it's an example of like, as much as Trudeau's the future and as much as like he has this like undue influence and, you know, he's associated with the World Economic Forum, which is not actually a conspiracy theory. It's right out in the open and you can buy three of Klaus Schwab's books on Amazon. Um, they're also fragile and they're also weak. And, and one of the ways they're weak is that they they sniff so much of their own jankum that they're uh liable to being punked by um phantoms right so there there's this guy in canada and he's a podcaster he's this weird dude his name is jeremy mckenzie and he's a former canadian armed forces member he served in afghanistan you know he was did a bunch of years in the military comes home sees what's going on starts this podcast called raging dissident and like whatever he's just this dude and he's kind of sounds like an angry right winger a lot of it's like jokes and memes and you know you're never quite sure what's serious or not about what he's saying but him and his friends came up with this meme called diagonal which is basically like look at a map of north america and uh, uh draw a line from alaska to florida and generally speaking all of the states and provinces along that line had less of a they weren't as serious about the covid lockdowns like they kind of like didn't go full bore locking everybody down and using masks and like they were like soft touch right and so mckenzie and his friends are like wow we should start a new country called diagonal it was literally a joke amongst him and his friends well that got laundered through this like you know how the media takes money from the government or like they're connected and they have these NGOs and they have like study groups. And there's this weird organization in Canada called the Canadian anti-hate network who takes money Mm -hmm. from Trudeau and then tells them what they want to hear. We'll see the Canadian anti-hate network who my friend Merrick calls the Northern poverty law center. They Mm -hmm. started this campaign of like hyping diagonal as this like white nationalist movement when it's like five people. And it's a joke, yeah. right? So some guy in Alberta shows up at the Coots Alberta border blockade because the truckers had blocked a bunch of border crossings. 
and he had like a diagonal patch on a vest or a jacket or his bag or something. And then that was used <coughs> as evidence that Diagolon were a violent insurrectionist group. No evidence, no, 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 nothing else except this guy's patch and a guy's podcast where he says, I would like Canada to not be locked down. Right. Yeah. And it ended up being repeated by senators like in the Canadian Senate. It was Diagolon was referenced in parliament. This Jeremy McKenzie guy shows up to meet um, the conservative party leader, Pierre Polyevra. Well, before he was elected and he was photographed and it melted the entire Canadian media establishment down because, Oh no, this ultra white nationalist racist Nazi is who's taking over Canada met Polyevra, but like, he's just a dude with a podcast and they, <coughs> he was charged with like, um, gun charges right before POEC started because they didn't want him to comment on POEC. It was literally like a political hit job. Um, dodgy RCMP officer, some dodgy lawyer in Saskatchewan. He got flown to Saskatoon, put in the brig for two months, and then they let him go. And now it's, it's, it's assumed that all the charges against him are going to be stayed or dropped because there's nothing to them. But while this guy is in jail in Saskatoon, for bogus charges unrelated to anything he ever did or said involving Freedom Convoy, they had him testify at POEC. And the only reason he had to testify is because the government and the media in Canada had been sniffing their own farts for so long that they made themselves believe that this guy was the leader of like some white nationalist army that was going to take the country over. Like, that's how fucking retarded these people are. Yeah. So the, the POEC, <laughs> this is the inquiry into Trudeau's um, invocation of the, the Emergency Powers Act. And, 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 and I mean, that, that act is basically like, I mean, what is that? That's like a World War II thing that no one had ever used in Canada. Could you get oh, us up so, to speed on that okay, and how we go so, from there to, yeah, the, the, to the, the inquiry? So the Emergencies Act is the descendant of something that used to be called the War Measures Act. Okay. And the War Measures Act is an old piece of legislation that was meant to give the government extraordinary powers during a war. And it mm -hmm. was only ever invoked three times. World War I, World War II, and in 1970, during what was called the front FLQ crisis, the Front Deliberation to Quebec, where, like, you know, uh, uh, some Quebec politician was murdered, a British... Uh, diplomat was like uh, uh, taken, um, hijacked, whatever. <coughs> and there was like literal violence, right? So Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, invoked the War Measures Act to deal with the FLQ. And in the aftermath of that, even though there was way more legitimate reason for Trudeau Sr. to invoke it, people said that the government like overreached. They like yeah. arrested hundreds of people within 24 hours. Half of them got like let go with no charges. You know, it was considered overreach back then for actual violence and an actual problem. So 
The War Measures Act was rewritten in the 1980s and became something new called the Emergencies Act, which had a bunch of different, like, you know, wording in it and different controls and different levels of, like, what constitutes an emergency built into it so that they wouldn't have a repeat of the overreach of what happened in 1970 during the FLQ crisis. So they basically set it up so that it would never be used unless, you know, there's like nuclear war or something like that's how bad it would have to be. Trudeau Jr., unfortunately, um, because he's a vainglorious fucking twat and pardon my language, but you know, I feel very strongly about the subject. Uh, he used it because he could not stand having these guys in Ottawa for three weeks, basically saying you're wrong. Right. Yeah. And he wanted a January 6th of his own. Right. Oh, yeah. No, the, right from the word go. I mean, the, when the Freedom Convoy showed up in Ottawa on I think it was January 29th or January 30th. I mean, I was there. I went home. I took part in it. Mm -hmm. And Trudeau bounced like he's like, I'm going to stay at a cabin in the woods in Quebec somewhere. And then he like, you know, radios in a, uh, a, a, a speech to the to the you know to the people from this secret location because he's hiding because right from the word go you know they wanted it to be january 6th north and again this gets back to what i was saying earlier Can the canadian media and the canadian political establishment are so married to the united states even though they project that you know the americans are heathens they have too many guns and we measure ourselves by not being them without them they're nothing, right? And so Trudeau does this thing where he's like, oh, wow, I get to do, you know, I get to like bring the hammer down like Joe Biden over these people that are taking over my capital. But like the Freedom Convoy um, for being truckers who are used to delivering things, they did not deliver a January 6th. Zero violence ever. Um, the, the, <coughs> the POEC proved that. The, the, all the receipts are there. Um, a lot of people tried to say, oh, they robbed a soup kitchen, but that was never proven. And then the Freedom Convoy people set up like six of them on their own and they fed the homeless. It was shown the Ottawa police were like, yep, crime went down while Freedom Convoy was here. Uh, you know, the, the Ottawa never had it so good. If you talk to a regular person in Ottawa, it's like it was a party every weekend. You know, yeah, there was lots of honking, but like other than honking, you know, and the psychosomata that flowed from that later on with phantom honking and all that other garbage, you know, it really wasn't that much of an imposition on anybody. But again, like you said, Trudeau had to have his January 6th, and when he didn't get it, they had to lie about it. Yeah, it, it already seems <coughs> amazing, really, what, what people were prepared to, to believe about about that thing and um i, I mean to, apart quite apart from the, the 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 centrist media and and whatever left-wing media personalities condemning it so I, I mean how did the truckers union respond because well, that's uh, interesting you know, so if we started with jimmy hoffa this was quite a different reaction right yeah so um truckers in america and canada are not really unionized um, mm -hmm. It's anywhere between five and seven percent of truck drivers are unionized. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. That could be a whole other podcast uh, downstream of the deregulation, 
you know, just the sort of like uh, everything since Reagan and demonization of unions. But anyway, um, what unions there are in Canada, and I wrote an article about this in Newsweek, like the unions across the board, not just the Teamsters, but like the Canadian auto workers who are now called IFOR, something like that. All the public sector unions, they all demonized the Freedom Convoy. Like the front page of their websites was all like, we don't approve of this. We don't approve of, you know, these guys are all Nazis and white nationalists and you should go get your vaccine and do your part. And like, you know, the, the Teamsters were totally against it. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting, especially coming from the left, um, there's a, you know what like corporate lobby groups and industry groups are, right? Like, so uh, there's a very large, probably the largest trucking industry lobby group in Canada is called the Canadian Trucking Alliance, CTA. CTA uh, very much came out against the Freedom Convoy and for Trudeau's vaccine mandate. Um, turns out the CTA um, are mostly very large trucking concerns, people with hundreds, if not thousands of trucks. Some of them often aren't even owned by like private owners. They're like income funds or like, you know, investors groups that like, oh, cool, let's invest in this trucking company. Right. And there's a lot of that because of consolidation that's happened in the industry over the last 30 years. Well, CTA were against us. The fucking Teamsters were against us. Everybody was against us. And, you know, another interesting tie into this is that, you know, the left is also the party of science, right? We love science. Um, trust the science. Believe the science. The science, the science, the science. Just another thought terminating cliche. Um, something else that was um, shown during POEC, but I knew before POEC because I was paying attention, is... There was never a study done to show that truck drivers spread COVID-19 more than anybody else. No. Um, truck drivers at one time were worshipped as essential workers. And prior to January 2022 and the imposition of this mandate, we were going back and forth over the border and traveling all over North America and doing our thing while the laptop cased and the email job people were all hiding at home in their pajamas. They still got fed and got everything delivered to them because of us. And then Trudeau turns around and says, no, 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 no. You're not crossing the border anymore unless you take this vaccine. And something that fucking drives me crazy is in recent months, you know, it became more widely accepted that the mRNA shots did not prevent transmission nor infection. And there's a lot of commentators out there in the zeitgeist who are saying, well, we never said that it prevented transmission or infection which is a lie and all the politicians said you should go get vaccinated because it prevents transmission but the like science defenders were like well they never said that okay cool well if they didn't say it where were you people defending the rights of workers to say no thank you if in fact it doesn't prevent transmission then all of these mandates for any worker to get this vaccine, whether they're a trucker or working for the Canadian government in some capacity or whoever, these mandates were bullshit right from the word go. If yeah. you believe, if you want to retcon all of that rhetoric, all of that psyop, all of that narrative, that outgrouping, the scapegoating, 
telling anybody that didn't get the vaccine that they were a bad person, that they should be fired from their job. If you're saying that, well, we never said that. Well, we always knew it didn't prevent transmission. Where were you on day one saying these people shouldn't then be fired from their jobs? No, like and these, I can't argue with that. And these the people cru- are the cru- fucking liars. The cruel irony is that it was precisely uh, those who had been essential workers and who had been like treated to this moralized narrative of how you know how saintly the 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 uh, the uh, essential workers are during the kind of lockdown period of of COVID. It was they who became the hottest focus of selective vaccine mandates. There's a very interesting comparison to be made with health workers uh, in just as the um, just as the truckers uh, convoy was getting going protesting those vaccine mandates. Britain was trying to impose vaccine mandates on nurses and on health workers. So you you had gone from the kind of lockdown situation where we had all that propaganda that Britain especially did so well, uh, uh, follow the rules to protect the NHS, look in this nurse's eyes, how can you tell her that you went out to a party, etc, etc. These people who had been like held up as those who we were protecting, along with grandma, of course, by uh, obeying lockdown rules, they became the object of um, these the sadistic and wholly unnecessary mandates. The, the other comparison I'd just throw in, uh, incidentally, between British health workers and, and North American truckers, is that Britain's trade unions did oppose the vaccine mandates for the health workers. They did it quite quietly, and they did it behind the scenes. They didn't come out as anti-vaccine mandate particularly, and I, I couldn't really? get anyone to come on the show to speak about it, but they they did have an official position against it, and, and indeed the um, the vaccine mandates for health workers was was quietly rescinded by the government. So it, it's um, it's one of those things where I, I don't know. I, on the show in the past, I've cited the um, the anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, who said that every society, every human culture bans incest, but they all define incest differently. Um, similarly, <laughs> like. The liberal left always condemns being a crank and being uh, not following science, etc. But in every different country, that means a different thing. So British trade unionists opposed vaccine mandates quietly for nurses and yet regarded the truckers' convoy as totally illegitimate, even though they were just trying to do the same thing. A lot of this is just programming, right? And like, you know, I live in the United States now. My wife is American. Um Obviously, my in-laws are American. Uh, one, my wife has two brothers. One of my brother-in-laws, I uh, was having like a text exchange with him about all this stuff. And he says, well, I listened to this one podcast. Why don't you listen to it? Because this is, you know, I think this you should hear this to get an uh, opposing view to what yours is. And so I listened to it. And it's this podcast that's part of this U.S. media thing called daily beast and i mean the one guy is a professional social justice warrior that's always looking for racists under every rock and i mean whatever i can't i can't comment on that and the other dude came from a libertarian magazine but like their whole shtick on this podcast was that like 
yeah, the truckers are all Nazis and they're just, you know, they're taking money from Trump and everybody in America should ignore them. And my in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law who are dedicated like NPR Americans, you know, democracy now, progressives, they got the same vibe. And it's like the American leftist media took what the Canadian CBC or CTV, like mainstream media said as gospel. Um, yeah. One of the very interesting things I've, uh, I noticed uh, uh, since the Freedom Convoy took place was the almost nobody, nobody from the international media that I'm aware of, maybe I'm wrong, sent reporters or journalists to Ottawa to investigate what was going on at all. No. So the international media was basically relying on the CBC, CTV News, Global, all the locals in Canada, and, you know, the AP Wire or Reuters or whoever to get their news from. Well, when the entire Canadian media landscape is subsidized by the government, right, there's $600 million in subsidies from Trudeau to Canadian media, and that doesn't include the CBC, which is another thing all on its own. And all of them are reading from the same script, and none of them are asking pertinent questions like, it's been almost a year now. How come the one guy that did show up with a Nazi flag that everybody took a photo of, we still don't know who he is, right? How come the other guy with a rebel, there was two guys with rebel flags, the one guy got chased out by the protesters, they basically said, get the fuck out of here, he had a balaclava on and police issue boots, and he was told to get lost, so all right, obvious plant. Then the other guy with a rebel flag was, he came out, he says, yeah, hi, it was me, and the media ignored it, because it didn't suit their narrative, so the Canadian media lied their asses off about us. Right. And I'm very like, I'm sorry. I've been yelling on your podcast. I'm, I'm going to do the Canadian thing and I'm going to apologize. <laughs> but it's very personal to me. I have cousins. I have friends back home in Canada who won't talk to me because they think I'm some kind of anti-Semite fucking Nazi, even though my wife is Jewish. My daughters, by their rules, are Jewish. And like they just saw this one flag and like it just shut their brains down. There was no critical thinking about this at all. And the Canadian media actively discouraged and scapegoated anyone that asked questions. Like, is this, is this some, like, 1984 shit? Like, am I going crazy? How do you assess the, like, the balance sheets of the uh, the truckers' convoy in, in retrospect and, and a year on? I, I mean, you described the... The, the ways in which that the, there were successes for the for, for the convoy, uh, the, the ways in which you've been vindicated by the inquiry, and yet the way it's kind of seen in the popular imagination probably hasn't really shifted. It was quite a novel form of direct action, and it's been imitated elsewhere in the world. Um, what are the you know how do you kind of assess its success in retrospect? Well, I mean it. As you said at the start of the show, it's been one of the more um, successful grassroots um, political slash, I mean, for lack of a better word, workers movements. I mean, every truck driver is yeah. a worker. Um, yeah. I recall in my, uh, my my previous appearance on your show, having to uh, 
cut through all the discussion of like kulaks versus workers versus owners mm -hmm. and all that. Well, of course, how... now we know that um, software engineers on 150K who work at Twitter are workers, uh, yes. but truck drivers are not workers. I'm glad no, that's right. Yeah, that. no, it's amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing how that happened. And another angle on that, funny you should bring that up. Um, you know, I, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the like uh, uh, Twitter files Nord. I want to see like how much the Canadian government was involved in trying to influence Twitter to suppress Clearly. information. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did it in the U.S. Why would they do it up north? Um, but as far as the like the balance sheet goes, man, it's hard to say. I mean, the average person. I, again, I live in the United States. While the Freedom Convoy was going on, plenty of Americans that I would meet in person. You know, if they knew I was Canadian or if they found out in conversation, would be like, yeah, man, I'm. we're so happy to see this. Someone needs to be standing up to this nonsense. And I saw lots of Canadian flags here in the U.S., which you only sort of see occasionally. But, like, there was a lot of support here. Um, there was a lot of support around the world. Um, in Canada, though, again, like, the, the, the I, I hate to say it, but, like, the power of the media is something we need to contend with. And, again, you know, like, I had friends, I, I'm not on Facebook, I haven't been in years, but like friends of mine sent me screenshots of other people and family members of mine who I know, who have my phone number, who have my email address, and were talking smack about me and saying, I can't believe Gord's such a crazy right winger. When did Gord become a Trump supporter? Why is my cousin a fascist? Like well, this is of, this is what it's like now. Well, so okay, but the thing mm. I'm getting to, the deeper problem beyond the media, beyond the government, beyond all this stuff, is the buzz it put on people's heads, right? And this is the thing that the Freedom Convoy um, helped with some people is that the the COVID regime around the world divided families, and it like literally made good guys and bad guys, right? Even though they were wrong and they're opposite. And the people who bought into the bad, the good guys, bad guys narrative are, I don't know if there's ever going to be a reckoning with them, but like they literally thought that anybody that opposed the COVID regime was going to kill grandma or they were Nazis or they were far right wingers. And, and there's been like, there, there has to be a reckoning with this because it's like it's it's personal now. It's friends and family who are divided and haven't spoken in years. And every person, every like non-mainstream reporter in Ottawa would tell you that. There's a lady, her name is Rupa Subramania. She did some great reporting. Every person she talked to in Ottawa said the same thing. We yeah. we want our lives back. We want regular, normal society back. We want to be able to talk to our friends and family. We want to have our jobs back. We just, like, th this thing literally put the buzz on people's heads to the point, like, I have people in my life that were very good friends of mine. I'd speak to regularly, interested in my kids, kept in touch. I've been giving me the silent treatment for, like, two years now. And, like, it's, it's not about the truckers anymore. It wasn't even about the truckers when it started. It was about the overreach of the COVID regime and the smuggling in of fascism under the title of public health policy. And until the people who bought into that 
admit they were wrong and have a reckoning with those of us that were skeptical and actually did the right thing of saying, hey, maybe there's something wrong with this picture. You know, yeah. until that reckoning takes place, I don't know where we're going to go. The other kind of angle I wanted to bring up uh, from the point of view of this as a, as a, as a grassroots movement is that right now there, there is a lot of excitement among those who were critical of the COVID regime um, from the point of view of what's being uncovered in this, albeit chaotic way, by Elon Musk uh, after his takeover of Twitter and also the extremely innovative and interesting um, case uh, against the US government being uh, headed by the new Civil Liberties Alliance and uh, Janine Oh, can you fill me? Who, who, can, can you fill? Can you fill me in on that? I'm unaware. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, for 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 the listeners, uh, if they're listening to this series in order, they'll have heard from um, from from Janine describing it. But basically, there, there, there's been a few false starts, but in, in various ways, um, the uh, uh, lawsuits are being launched against um, the Surgeon General in the first instance and, and the Biden administration uh, as such now, uh, contending that the behaviour of the Biden administration towards social media companies constitutes um, coercion, that, that, that uh, it's not just that the, the companies wanted to you know, reflect the interests of the, the current regime, but rather that they're being coerced. And therefore, when Twitter bans accounts or bans certain topics, uh, it, is, it is state coercion. Now, this is, this is a kind of, um, the kind of libertarian language that uh, the, the NCLA uh, always couches things in, and all of their campaigns and cases are always suing the government for overreach. Um, but it is just very interesting that it is... It is COVID and the, this kind of apparent, what's looked like an arbitrary banning of accounts that turns out to have been uh, in pretty deep in getting instructions from, from the government, that actually this is, this is the case that's going to kind of burst open quite how interventionist the US state certainly uh, is with these, these social media companies. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it's going to have, um, I'm sure it's going to have, unexpected impacts in a lot of other areas but what I was going to say about it is I, I, I'm almost slightly suspicious or cautious about how far the resistance against the unnecessary uh, and uh, and violent and awful aspects of COVID uh, prevention has been brought upstairs it's been brought up into the lawyer's office and quite far away from any populist idea of a grassroots resistance and uprising and you know sometimes right. you have to sometimes you have to work with the suits but I, I i feel like if if covid was the greatest gift to the anti-populists you know you'd had seven to ten years of both the left and the right being extraordinarily heterodox in what they were arguing for at the level of domestic policy more unforgivably extremely heterodox about foreign policy, then suddenly COVID comes along, divides everyone safely into their kind of boxes again, uh, and also takes any decision-making power out of the hands of ordinary people, and with the notable exception of Black Lives Matter, bans street protest. So it was, it was really a kind of anti-populist and anti-insurgency um, kind of 
gift and, and moment, really. So that is why, uh, however interesting I find that this kind of legal wrangling over it, I don't think that the real reckoning is going to happen through solicitors. I don't think no, it's, it's probably through not. Litigation. Like... It's got to happen from the grassroots. And that's why right. the truckers need, to, for me, need to be the legacy of this resistance more than the lawyers do. Sure, but the 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 only problem with that is, uh, I mean, I, there's a couple of them. Mm -hmm. the, the, the the truckers, the the freedom convoy lit a fire. They were very inspirational to a lot of people that said, you know, hey, we can fight back against you know the globalists, WEF, the COVID regime, um, our overcased of like, you know, technocratic clerics telling us what to do with no input from us, and that's great. Um, but the Public Order Emergency Commission, I don't want to say it was designed to fail, but it, mm. it's, it's, its purview is so narrow. Like, its only question is, um, was the, uh, did the requirements to invoke the act, were they met? Or did the government, like, go too far? And, and that's a fair enough question. But there's no accountability to it. It says right in the beginning of it, like all that is is recommendations for next time it's invoked. So nothing is going to happen to Trudeau. Nothing's going to happen to Freeland, even though they like froze people's bank accounts, you know, um, I mean, and scared the living crap out of uh, investment in Canada. And the banksters were all like, spooked, oh, yeah. yeah, right. And I mean, so is there going to be any accountability with that? No. Um, is there going to be any accountability politically? Um Canada has a uniparty, right? There's the there's the Liberal Party, which is Justin Trudeau, who's being supported by the quote unquote left party and the NDP, and this Jagmeet Singh SOB. Like after the Emergencies Act inquiry was invoked and then canceled, and then in the aftermath of it, Trudeau made a deal with Jagmeet Singh to give him whatever he wanted. Because Trudeau knew that what he had done was so bad that the conservatives and the Bloc Québécois and the NDP could possibly gang up on him and, uh, and bring a, uh, a confidence motion to Parliament, right? Which is in, in a parliamentary system, certain pieces of legislation, if they don't pass, it triggers an election. This vainglorious twat, Jagmeet Singh, um, understood that the NDP were in no way capable of fighting another election. And one of the things that was like um, pointed out why Trudeau was so afraid of the Freedom Convoy is between Give, Send, Go and GoFundMe and all these other donations that were made to the Freedom Convoy over the course of a month, it was something on the order of like $24 million. That exceeded the... Um, the, the revenue generating of the liberals of the NDP. So the Freedom Convoy, if it was a political party, made more money in a month than what hmm. these guys normally do in a quarter or sometimes even a year. So like that scared the pants out of these guys. And so yeah. Jagmeet Singh understood that the NDP was broke and couldn't afford to uh, run another election. Trudeau knew that if he faced a confidence motion, he was done. So the two of these bastards, in order to save their own skins, made this like, you know, I, I can't remember the term, but like they made an arrangement. And that way 
it kept Trudeau in power until the next legally required election in 2025. And, you know, the Conservative Party in Canada, they've been all over the place with the Freedom Convoy, but mostly bad, right? So Aaron O'Toole was ousted, which was good, which was attributed to the Freedom Convoy. But, like, this Pierre Pauly Ever guy, he only was against vaccine mandates and for the Freedom Convoy when it was convenient for him, you know? Um, then he, like, went off against this Jeremy McKenzie and Diagalon thing because of, like, something he heard maybe have been said on this McKenzie guy's podcast. But, like, they're, they're not in it to, like, hold Trudeau accountable. And something I said in one of my substacks was, like, people want the Democrats in America held to account for this, right? And people in Canada want Trudeau held to account. But when your opposition, air quotes, yeah. parties... Mainstream conservatives are... Oh, as, no, they're not... They're in not, on it as anyone. They're, they're, they're in on it as anybody else. So, again, you're correct. The The reckoning that's going to have to take place is going to be have to be amongst friends, family, people, community yeah. organizations, because... Our political elite, and I use the term elite very loosely because they're the scum of the fucking earth and they're not good at anything and elites of the wrong term. Like, their their own interest is themselves in furthering their own power. It's plain for everybody to see. This is not a conspiracy theory. And we're not going to get anything out of them to correct for what's happened in the last two and a half years. It's just not, not going to happen. Yeah, totally right. I, I mean, that, that brings me back to Elon Musk. And it, it, I'm almost embarrassed at how often the name comes up right now, but he's made himself totally unavoidable. And we'll see how that gamble works out for him. But uh, so many populists and, and so many you know, people who were anti-Covidian uh, through uh, recent years have very excited about uh, what Elon Musk has been revealing about uh, the, the kind of conspiracy of, of the, the previous Twitter leadership uh, with the COVID regime, all qualifications that Gord and I have both been making about, you know, the real reckoning comes from below and among those who are below, not from above. But, I mean, here's an interesting thing. At this very moment um, that a lot of the people who, who, who felt uh, warmly towards the truckers' convoy are now feeling warmly towards Elon Musk. At that very moment, uh, Tesla has brought out its um, its its electric truck. And uh, <laughs> I'll drop a couple of little clips of this for uh, for the YouTube audience. So uh, if you want to say anything over it, just unmute yourself. Seeing a uh, Yellow truck. This is Pepsi. The first, the first we ever used the Musk, the Musk truck. That's what we're looking at right now. Uh, so that gives an idea of the shape of it. There's not not much footage available online. And this is a clip that Tesla put out, a sped up footage of uh, showing off how spacious inside the Tesla Semi as it's called, uh, electric, uh, electric truck. All right, I'm going to drop that. All right, am I unmuted? You're unmuted. I think your uh, your your kids are on the are on the tape. This is a family show. That's uh, yes, that's yes, it is. Here. This is Georgia. <laughs> hey. Hello. 
Hey, this is Georgia. my daughter, Welcome Georgia, to the Poker who, Show. who will be three in March. And this is oh, Bibi, that's great. who will be five in May. Uh-huh. Hey, um, welcome to the yeah, Poker Show, kids. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I couldn't find the unmute button. But as far as Mr. Musk and his truck goes, oh, man, this could start a whole other conversation on electronic vehicles and autonomous vehicles and all this technological utopianism. <laughs> But so it's I'll electric, try... and obviously the aspiration is to make yeah a, an automated truck that will do those deliveries without a driver. That's the yeah that's the, the, claim, the, the claim. That's the the, the long yeah. distance one. Okay, so um, on Mr. Musk and his Tesla trucks, um, stick to trolling the libs on Twitter. Your truck is ugly. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's only suited for certain um, particular. Uh, uh, modes of delivery and transport it will never do anything off the pavement and uh, it doesn't have a bunk in it uh, doors are set up wrong it looks like a fucking toilet um it yeah no just just, just stop stop all you people with your um aesthetic lozenge shaped bug mobiles be it a car or a big truck just stop we, we need to have like things that people want to be seen in and want to drive that aren't like the, the entire aesthetic of all vehicles now is like maximum uh, fuel mileage and like doing this uh, soft uh, uh, global warming and they're all gross and they're all ugly and nobody wants to drive them. Um, as far as like autonomous vehicles and stuff, there was a article that came out in Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago. Um, autonomous vehicles, as far as cars go, are a dead letter. Um, they can't get the they they can't get the. You want this truck? All right, we got Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime, <laughs> the OG is here. There you go, Georgia. Um, the yeah, the autonomous vehicles, as far as like they're the AI, they can't get them to like figure out simple stuff like turning left across traffic. They can't get them to be not freaked out and spooked by bad weather. Um, so like Ford, uh, Uber, all these people, all kinds of like autonomous car manufacturers and software developers are like, okay, cool. We spent a hundred million billion dollars, sorry, and got nowhere with it. And another problem with uh, the autonomous car market is that most people like to drive, right? And uh, yeah. the, all of this extra software and technology is going to drive the price of cars up. And they're already overpriced because of all of the dumb crap the government mandates on them, especially here in America now. Cars are no longer simple. You, you can't fix them yourself. And they're full of electronic doodads and safety features and screens that a lot of people don't want and a lot of people can't afford. So, like, there's this whole... You know, pe people are talking about, like, what do we do about the working class or the lumpen proles or the poor or the people on the, like, crappy end of the stick? Well, it's going to be a whole lot harder for them to have a vehicle now because cars are becoming more and more expensive. And a great deal of that cost is um, uh, regulatorily imposed electronic garbage that we don't need. Same thing is happening with trucks. Um, all new trucks are ugly. They're garbage. I wouldn't drive one. Um, the, the problem with autonomous trucking and the reason they're still pushing forward with that is to eliminate people like me, because uh, unlike cars, 
there's a cost savings in eliminating the driver. When you're an autonomous car, uh, you're making your money off the person buying it to drive it. With an autonomous truck, you're selling it to a company that would rather yeah. avoid having 35% of their operating cost be the guy driving the truck. So there's a different like economic calculus with the development of those two platforms. So you're, you're going to see them keep trying to do autonomous trucks. They're not going to give up on that because I'm expensive and they want, be, they want me gone and my fellows. The cars, that's going to be a bit of a bumpier road, so to speak. Um, do, do you see it as a kind of promising thing that like such a large number of truckers like did actually show up and um, politicize and do direct action and defend their own interests in the uh, truckers convoy? Or are you worried that actually like this proved so kind of politically incoherent and the attack on it was so full throttle and people experience such like reputational and family damage of the kind that you're describing that actually a lot of people might be put off the idea that they should take the fight to, you know, future kinds I, of, I have, uh, I have some contradictory like answers. That. I have yeah. some contradictory answers to your questions. Um, I reject the notion that the freedom convoy was incoherent in its aims when it was initially being it's organized. Yeah. Uh, okay. When it was initially being organized, there was a bunch of different people involved. There was some controversy around this memorandum of understanding, but that was rejected early on. And once arrived in Ottawa, they had two objectives. Get rid of all the vaccine mandates. Get rid of the Arrive Can app. They had two things. In mm -hmm. contrast to, say, BLM or Occupy Wall Street that had like yeah. a whole panoply of... Change all of society in a vague way that no one can agree on. Right. Yeah. So the, the Freedom Convoy people, the, the main organizers in Ottawa, to their credit, got on to um, making it very precise very quickly after their arrival in Ottawa, uh, despite the media trying to like focus on stuff that was rejected on route. Um, as far as the, the social costs, yeah, there are these social costs. Um, as far as the energy of the Freedom Convoy being applied to other things, um, I, and again, this is only my opinion, I wish, I really wish that the energy of the Freedom Convoy was somehow harnessed and used in other areas of the trucking business to push back against all the surveillance technology we're subject to. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm reviewing this book called Data Driven, which examines all the surveillance technology. And this applies to not just truckers, but like everybody in the workforce, whether you like work at a fast food place and you're like being timed for like how fast you get a sandwich out. Um, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, you're an Amazon worker that's not allowed to go to the go pee. Like this doesn't just affect truckers. There's all wide swaths of the working class. There's some subject to the surveillance technology. Yeah. And I only wish like that people could get together and say enough of this. Like at some point, this technology is, uh, is going to be the death of us and people don't want to be monitored. Right. And I like, I, I would like the energy of the freedom convoy to keep moving towards these other areas because those other areas, and I was asked this by a couple of other people, um, you know, was, was were the vaccine mandates against the truckers like the last straw? 
And I'm like, yeah, actually they were because Canada brought in an ELD mandate like the U.S. There's all this surveillance technology and driver-facing cameras and all this garbage and monitoring that goes on. Like people think truckers are like, oh, you're out on the open road and you're by yourself and you make your own schedule. Well, it used to be that way. It's not yeah. anymore because your bathroom of like, breaks are times just like every office. Uh, I don't know. If, right? I don't know if they're timed. It doesn't go that far. But like we're we're under we're under the gun of timing. And all most trucks now, especially if you work for a big company, there's a satellite tracking unit on it. They're getting all of this information from you. Um, there's this uh, really chilling section of uh, uh, Professor Levy's book where she talks about this company called Omnitrax who have software that can monitor the driving behavior of drivers to such a granular level that they can identify drivers who are either having some kind of domestic problem at home or are at risk of quitting and going to work for somebody else and can flag that driver based on behaviors that they're monitoring with this surveillance tech that's built into the truck. Some of it mandated by the government, some of it not, but like they're getting into your heads. Yeah. Right? Like, the, of do, course do, these do, bastards can't resist. Oh, we've got this technology that can detect if you're getting sick or if you're depressed and maybe you should take time off. Also, we're going to use it to see if you're going to quit. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the, the mission creep is built into this shit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I mean, that, that, that is my populism, which is treat people like people and, and, and get off their backs. And, 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 uh, and this surveillance uh, culture has only massively expanded as a result of COVID. And, I think that even people who applauded it when it was applied to COVID, even people who are convinced, okay, we need to battle this pandemic, they should be getting up and fighting now. They should be drawing a line now. They should be joining us now and saying, do not apply that shit to other areas because that is what they're doing. Yeah, no, and like I said, I mean, I, I can only speak as my experience as a trucker or whatever, it, that is what it is, but like it's coming for other stuff. It already has come for other occupations and they're going to push for more of it because the insurance and actuarial people and the health and safety and the human resources demons, all they can do is think of things in abstractions and numbers. And mm -hmm. we want to reduce risk and we want to make less accidents, but like in doing so and imposing all the surveillance, they're making like being a working person, like they're making our lives hell and they're not listening. And, you know, one of the lessons I've learned from Freedom Convoy is that, like, even, even the, all of the people from all walks of life that showed up in Ottawa that were there for the whole three weeks and dance partied on the weekends and brought their families and bouncy castles and food and the, the whole nine yards, even though all of that was on display for everybody to see, the regime didn't listen and its media acted like the opposite was happening to scare the crap out of anybody who wasn't there to see it for themselves. So take that and apply it to the working class writ large who could bring any number of complaints to the table about our treatment or about concerns regarding the surveillance technology, concerns regarding how we're treated by employers and they'll just ignore us and dismiss us and they won't care and carry on as normal. That's a problem. That's a major, major problem. 
Well, Gordon McGill, it's been absolutely brilliant to look back on the Freedom Convoy one year on and also to look forward to what its legacy and what its potential remains. Listeners can find Gill, uh, uh, can find Gord McGill on Substack and uh, we're looking forward to this new podcast that you're going to be... Yeah, um, uh, it's uh, 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 autonomoustruckers.substack.com. Um, I've been really busy with this book review and uh, this chapter contribution and trying to get my uh, podcast off the ground, but hopefully there'll be more writing in the new year. The podcast is definitely coming out in the new year. And if you want to like nerd out about trucking, um, yeah, come find me. That's awesome, man. Well, Merry Christmas. And uh, I hope we can speak soon, buddy. Yes. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, Good day, David. Um, Thank you, all popular pod listeners. Uh, Appreciate you having me.